Welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode one for May 2023. Hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, we'll have a selection of your letters to the editor. Simon Hoare MP reflects on the need for active listening in bringing about real political change with examples from the Northern Ireland peace process. Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems urges us and the government to do more. Pat Osborne of the North Dorset Labour Party asks whether the coronation of a new monarch should prompt a wider debate about an elected head of state and how we should modernise our democracy. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party says it's time to wake up and see the flood. And Carol Jones of Sturmister Newton's Vale Pantry tells its story. But first, here's Laura. I write this at quarter to four in the morning on Friday. I sat down here at my desk 22 hours ago, well prepared for the monthly pre-publication day marathon ahead. Two hours ago, I was standing in my kitchen eating a hot buttery toasted bagel with peanut butter and thinking just another hour or so, but we're not done yet. Beside me, Courtney is slowly clicking through page after page of this oh-so-nearly-done May issue. I know I mentioned it last month, but in a couple of weeks we head to London for a national award ceremony and actually we don't care if we win. Well, not much. The very fact that we made that list is beyond astonishing because it's just us. And I'm not sure if most people truly grasp that. Obviously, we're here now putting the magazine together and we, of course, have a big team of brilliant writers and columnists who fill it with us. But apart from that, website design, us. Website content, us. Ad design, us. Networking, us. Event coverage, us. SEO work, still us. Photography, yeah, all right, that one's Courtney. Accounts, us. Actually, no, Courtney's money in, I'm money out because I'm better at spending it. Social media, us. Stats analysis, tech and industry research, PR, coffee brewing, all us. We often tell people this and they nod and they say, yeah, okay, can I talk to the person who does the, yes, yes, you can. How can I help? And of course, it's exhausting. And no, we have no idea when we'll next get a holiday. But there are benefits too. It means we know every single last detail about this gorgeous magazine of ours. It's innately ours in the way that only something that grows under your own fingertips can be. We know everyone in it. We remember every article. We read every Facebook comment. We see every email. We write every tweet. So for a panel of judges to think that the BV is up there with two of the very best regional newspapers in the country, frankly, we're already winners. And actually, I meant to talk about mugs this month. I've got a bit sidetracked. In the space of the last month, I've lost the sturdy afternoon coffee looks like an enamel mug mug, the thin small evening one, the round comfy hug in your hands one, the I run like peanut butter funny one. Every single one of my favourite mugs has developed a chip, a crack, been dropped or come out of the dishwasher in two pieces. How does that happen? Anyway, have a lovely May and think of us on the 18th. Letters to the editor. On planning applications, this is from Jay Nailsey of Sherborne. I'm concerned about the number of recent planning applications submitted by developers in our area. As discussed in Rachel Rowe's excellent article of the March edition, Is North Dorset Overwhelmed with Housing Developments? It's recently come to my personal attention that developers may not always disclose all details within their applications, leaving room for potential harm to our neighbourhoods. I would like to urge all local residents to take the time to thoroughly examine the documents submitted by developers. If you wish to object to a proposal, it's imperative to review all submitted materials with a critical eye. 
It may seem overwhelming at first given the volume of paperwork, but I believe this is precisely what the developers intend. They may use excessive documentation to obfuscate important details or hide major gaps in their proposals. As communities, we must not let ourselves be overwhelmed by the daunting task of reviewing these applications. Rather, we should work together dividing the paperwork and sharing our findings with one another. By doing so, we can ensure that all developments adhere to the needs and requirements of their neighbours. I encourage all residents to take an active role in reviewing local planning applications and voicing their concerns where necessary. As a united community, we can welcome much-needed excellent housing expansions, but also prevent undesirable developments, ensuring that our area remains a great place to live for years to come. M. Holderness from Charlton writes on climate protesters. Criticism of climate protesters is a sad indictment of how seriously many view the looming crisis. The criticism most widely hurled at these various forms of direct action is that they are counterproductive, that they antagonise ordinary people and make them stop listening. There's an obvious reply. No one was listening in the first place before the activists took to the streets. Even endless scientific warnings have made little impact on public or government behaviour. The establishment media have paid only lip service to the dangers, even as the effects on the climate have become harder to overlook. And governments have made placatory noises while doing nothing meaningful to reverse the collision course humanity is on. There have been repeated promises to stay under 1.5% centigrade of global warming while already emitting enough greenhouse gases to cause an increase that means we have little chance of avoiding staying under 2 degrees with what we're doing. We need change on a scale that no one is grasping, apart from the protesters, and I appreciate how drastically they're trying to get that message across. The future looks pretty dire. If we lose the biodiversity, we lose everything. There's no going back. It scares me a lot. It's not a rebellion we need, it's a revolution. Susan N. from Blanford writes on complaining businesses. As a newly retired woman who has successfully run my own business for most of my life, I have recently been surprised at the number of local business owners that dismiss, belittle or simply moan about social media. The internet is no longer new and businesses have had many, many years to adapt to the ever-evolving digital landscape. It's crucial for businesses to embrace change and adapt to survive in today's competitive market. Publicly complaining about the ways of the modern world is, in my opinion, the fastest way to make your brand appear old, dated and irrelevant to a new audience. The most successful businesses are those that attract and retain new customers by staying current, utilising the tools and technologies available to them. And in 2023, that has to include social media. I'm astonished at the many older, established local businesses who not only struggle to adapt to newer business models, but publicly bemoan the need to. Social media platforms offer business an incredible opportunity to engage with their audience, build brand awareness and promote their products or services. By dismissing or belittling these platforms, local businesses will simply miss out on valuable opportunities to connect with potential customers and grow their brand. They can ensure their business remains relevant, attracts new customers and continues to thrive in an increasingly digital world. Ronnie B. of Child Oakford wrote into the BV magazine about young people. It's crucial that we begin to address the needs of the younger generation in Dorset. In recent years, I've noticed a growing number of young people in our community 
who seem to be struggling to find meaningful activities, support and opportunities for personal growth. This then leads to feelings of isolation, boredom and disconnection from the community. In some cases, these feelings might even contribute to risky or antisocial behaviour. It's our responsibility to ensure that our young people have access to the resources and support they need to thrive. Outside of the uniformed youth groups, where are the safe spaces for them to socialise, learn and develop new skills? Where are the programmes and activities that help them develop a sense of belonging? I'm tired of seeing our young people drift moodily through their teen years, awaiting the day they can escape elsewhere in order for their lives to begin. What a waste of our homegrown talent and skills. The Field Solar Debate, and this is a message from Keith Beeson via the website, and it's in response to the March Rural Matters column from the CPRE, say yes to solar, but no to greenfield solar power stations. Interesting, but not balanced. I have solar panels and battery storage, but feel Rupert Hardy's pro-roof PV Anti-field scale PV stance only tells part of the story. I'm no expert, but the cost and use of resources to produce one kilowatt in a field must be less, cleaning, maintenance and repairs must be easier, and linking up with the grid must be better. I recognise that the UK's effort to eliminate hydrocarbon use is of little point unless the rest of the world does the same. That said, if I had the choice between having a south-facing field in an area of natural beauty covered in PV and less global warming, and no field covered in PV and more global warming, my choice is easy. One is reversible inconvenience, the other's a disaster. And a letter from Marie L. near Wincanton on being shortlisted. I'm an avid reader of the BV and wanted to extend my congratulations to the entire BV team for being shortlisted for the National Award this month. That's the regional publication of the year in the News and Magazine Awards 2023. It's a well-deserved recognition for creating such a high-quality publication. Over the last couple of years, I've been consistently impressed by the breadth and depth of the magazine, from local news, covered properly, to showing us the beauty of Dorset's wildlife, to a fascinating insight into farming, allotments and equestrian. I don't ride, she says, nor do I drive a tractor, nor grow my own veg, and yet I can't resist them. The BV magazine has become my go-to source for staying connected with my county. The digital format makes it easy for me to read and share the magazine with friends and family, even those who live outside Dorset. Your magazine has a warm voice that makes it feel like catching up with an old friend. And, of course, the stunning photography keeps me coming back for more every month. I'm sure many others feel the same way. I congratulate the whole BV team just for making the shortlist, an achievement in itself alongside two big regional newspapers, and I wish you the best of luck in winning the award. You deserve the recognition for the outstanding work you do. And the editor, Laura, writes, Thank you, Marie. The Swish Mayfair Awards night dinner is on the 18th of May. We'll be sure to keep everyone posted. Politics. Unite with foes and progress together. Populism in politics always oversimplifies issues. Effective political change requires active listening across divides says MP Simon Hoare. Regular readers will know of my suspicions of populism in politics. Not to be confused with being popular and what politician doesn't seek to be that, more the simplicity of the black and white of the populist's prescription. 
Populists, by their very worldview, only speak to those with whom they agree, or who agree with them, with their self-endorsing echo chamber, if you will. At the same time, they will demonise those with whom they disagree or find disagreeable. Achieving big political change, making the weather, is not within the armoury of the populace. They are unable to do so because they lack the capacity to reach across the aisle, to extend the hand of friendship and a listening ear. Such skills are prerequisites to making meaningful progress in often contested spaces. This was brought home to me at a recent Northern Ireland Affairs Select Committee hearing. Beware the 100 percenters. Sir John Major, Sir Tony Blair and former Irish Prime Minister Bertie Ahern all said that to get to the point where the Good Friday Agreement was possible, people who were sworn and ancient enemies had to sit down and talk, to listen and to respect each point of view and to find the route of pragmatic compromise needed to make progress. I heard it again in every speech at a recent conference hosted by Queen's University Belfast celebrating Agreement 25. Bill and Hillary Clinton made powerful speeches on the issue, as did Senator George Mitchell, who gave up five years of his life in the search for peace in Northern Ireland. George warned against the 100 percenters, those who can only claim victory when they achieve everything and their opposite numbers nothing. I heard it from the President of the EU, who spoke on how the Windsor framework had been negotiated through respectful conversations focused on the possible. Perhaps above all, I heard it from a range of viewpoints across the traditions, who all effectively said, I knew progress was possible and resolution within touching distance when I found myself speaking to X, Y or Z, a sworn enemy and opponent. Surprising dinner companions. I was a teenager in the 1980s and remember the troubles clearly, albeit viewed from the safety of South Wales. It's why I've become so involved with the politics of Northern Ireland. I'm committed to playing my small part in ensuring no return to the days of hate and blood. The progress made over the last 25 years was made crystal clear to me in two personal events. The first was an unaccompanied Tory MP walking down the Falls Road in Belfast. In the past, English politicians would have had to go in armoured cars with heavy security. The second was finding myself sitting next to Gerry Adams at the celebration dinner at Hillsborough Castle. On the political richer scale, these were two small things, but enormously illuminating of the scale of change that non-populist politics can deliver. As the Windsor framework underscores, pragmatic politics continues to deliver. I shall close with another personal anecdote, if I may. A loyalist blogger and campaigner did not have me on his Christmas card list. Jamie Bryson saw me as being opposed to everything he holds dear. He's waged a bit of a campaign against me in the media. Recently we bumped into each other in Belfast. We could have cold-shouldered each other, muttering under our breasts as we slipped past. But we didn't. We shook hands. We met for coffee. A presumed ten-minute chat evolved into a two-hour heart-to-heart. He's coming to my select committee and we have continued our conversations. We won't, we know, agree on everything, but we've agreed to try to follow the advice of those political titans who led the way with the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Let us have more of that kind of politics. We can do more, but so can they, writes Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Liberal Democrats. When this issue is published, the local elections on the 4th of May will have come and gone. Parties will have had their triumphs and disasters. Each will assail us with well-spun explanations for whatever has happened. Then, blessedly, we can put it all aside for a couple of days and celebrate the coronation of our new king and queen. 
If ever there was an institution providing stability, continuity and a force for good, it is the monarchy as we now have it. Leading by example, using influence, not power. Looking for the best in people and communities. What a strong message for politicians of every hue. Let us have less of being told what to do by an amorphous centre, be it local or national. Let us have less partisanship in power. Fine on the stump, but put it aside when you get there, hey? But let us have more exemplary behaviour, more focus on creating the positives of opportunity and fairness, more action that makes our lives happier and healthier. We can all play our part, just as most of us give something to charity, even if it's only buying a lottery ticket, we all have scope for being better citizens. We can drop less litter, drive with more consideration, behave in public with more decorum and less rudeness. We could use social media with more courtesy. There are any number of things we could do to make the lives of others around us that little bit happier. There's plenty of scope, too, for taking more active steps to contribute. Become a water guardian, that's regular local checking of water quality. Join a litter pick or environmental group. Become a school reading helper. Join the Royal Voluntary Service as a community volunteer. Do some voluntary driving. The list is endless. Take a look at the big help out and see the range of possibilities. It's not only the job of those we elect to make our lives better. We all have a role. But when it comes to public services, government has to be the prime mover and to be held accountable. Take the NHS, dentistry and sewage. How can government fail to act when a vital organisation like the NHS gets into difficulty? It is underperforming against most measures, has very poor employee relations and no thought-through long-term manpower plan. How can government have allowed dentist deserts to proliferate in the way they have? How can we have frittered away into private pockets all that money we've paid for water over so many years and still have raw sewage in our rivers? But with our eyes lifted up and our national confidence restored, we could soon put a stop to nurses being cowed and coerced. We could show off our great teeth while happily wild swimming. Why not? Spring is in the air. Change is in the air. Pat Osborne of the North Dorset Labour Party writes on a political decline on swearing allegiance. As someone who believes that the head of state should be elected, I will be politely declining King Charles' invitation to swear an oath of true allegiance to him on the 6th of May. It's not that I don't like the man. In fact, I go so far as to say that I have a deep respect and admiration for his commitment to the many environmental causes that he's used his position to champion and promote over several decades, long before it was considered fashionable to do so, or contentious not to. I don't have an issue with his choice of partner, as some do, nor do I sit in judgment on the way in which other members of his family have chosen to behave, either publicly or privately. I also refuse to hold it against him that he will always be overshadowed by the example of committed public service set by his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. I simply believe that if we must have a new king, he should be swearing allegiance to the people of his country and not the other way round. Whilst the coronation weekend provides a welcome opportunity to spend time with family, friends, neighbours and others within our communities, it's also a political event. As such, it should provide the British people with a chance to reflect on how well our political institutions are really serving us. 
When the gazebos and bunting have all been folded away, we'll still be in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. There will still be growing wealth and social inequality. The NHS will still be in need of intensive care. We will still be dangerously unprepared for the climate crisis. A feudal display of deference to an unelected head of state changes none of these things. Rather, it legitimises the persistent failure of our political institutions to govern in the interests of the majority and masks the reality that we really need to talk about modernising our democracy. It's time to wake up and see the flood, writes Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party. Social media is brilliant for keeping in touch with family and friends, but it's also a fertile medium for the spread of disinformation. Studies have shown that false information spreads faster and further than accurate information and is also more likely to attract attention. With an average profit of 1.5 million every minute for the last 50 years, the fossil fuel industry has been well able to spread its climate change disinformation campaign and buy all the influence needed to successfully delay political interference that might limit its activities. Governments and regulators around the world have effectively been captured, which explains the International Monetary Fund's calculation that the industry benefits from subsidies of around £9 million per minute. In part, this is through not having to pay for the deaths and damage caused by air pollution, heat waves and other impacts of global warming. Another more subtle form of media manipulation is to starve issues of the oxygen of publicity, as Margaret Thatcher described it. On the 22nd of April, I joined the Big One demonstrations in London, with a huge number of people who all spent the time and expense to travel to Westminster to express their growing alarm at the disastrous inadequacy of government action on the environment. It was great to see so many people of all ages and ethnicities, including families with young children, coming together peacefully to express the growing public disquiet at our politicians' failure to safeguard our collective future. Before the event, the media frothed with a totally bogus story about the London Marathon being disrupted. It wasn't. But in the end, the four days of demonstrations created minimal media publicity. Nothing to see here, folks. Climate change will affect us all, one way or another. Cornwall and Devon still have hosepipe bans introduced last summer. Here in North Dorset, a few intense storms this winter caused flooding instead of compensating for the long periods without any rain at all. At a recent Dorset Council planning consultation meeting, I was pleased to see the seriousness with which the environment is now being taken. But we are still not taking sufficient action anything like quickly enough. We simply cannot afford to ignore the urgency of the situation. Carol Jones is an amazing person, the kind who seems to manage to pack 48 hours into each 24, because, not content with being a counsellor for Sturmanster Newton, she was the prime mover behind the creation of that town's well-known enterprise, the Vale Pantry. The pantry helps people from a wide area, almost entirely from North Dorset, but also from a couple of East Somerset towns too. I spoke to Carol recently and commented that she was clearly a very busy lady. Oh, but I love it that way. You know, I mean, what else would I do? I sold my business back in 19, no, sorry, 2021. And I, I thought, well, I thought I was busy then, but 
frankly, I've never been so busy now. So. Do you manage to get any sleep, Carol? Yes, always with the help of a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. Sounds very nice to me. And and you are a full-time counsellor as well as uh, being the, the head yes. poncho for, for the Vale Pantry. Yes. yes, I stood for election in 2019 for Sturminster Newton on Dorset Council and I very narrowly won my seat. Um, so I work on a number of committees um, and I have to say actually in terms of the pantry that's really been so useful because if there are certain issues that I need to delve into, whether it be through housing or benefits or, or social services, anything like that, council tax, I know who to speak to. And it actually really helps solve quite a lot of cases quite quickly. Um, so that the contacts there have been really very good. So there's that. And I obviously I, I started my head up the Vale Pantry. And I'm a governor up at the high school and my lead there is safeguarding. So there's plenty going on. So did you, was it your idea to start the Vale Pantry? Well, I was working at the time with the surgery, the uh, Blackmore Vale Partnership, the surgery in Sturminster Newton, which at that time had surgeries in Shaftesbury and Gillingham, Fontmel Magna, Stolbridge, Marnhall, and um, at the time, through what was called the PPG, the Patient Participation Group, um, they were looking at the number of appointments that were being taken by people that didn't actually necessarily need to see the GP. And that came out at an astonishing 47% of people were taking GP appointments that could have been seen by somebody else just as efficiently. So when work started to see, well, you know, what were these people looking to have, what issues were they that they were looking to have sorted out? Some of it came down to social anxiety, to depression, but food was very much part of it. So I started work with um, the practice manager at the time, Jane Dawes, and we looked at the pantry model, we really liked it, and we thought, well, that's really what we wanted to have in Sturminster Newton. And then COVID struck. So at the point when COVID struck, everything, all meetings stopped, and I set up the COVID action group within Sturminster. So we were running prescriptions, shopping, dog walking, or posting letters, you name it. We managed to get some funding for food vouchers, and through the schools and through contacts we suddenly started to see a real level of deprivation that actually we hadn't realized was there and within no time at all we were feeding between 50 and uh, 80 families a week with with vouchers and so as soon as the first lockdown lifted i thought well we just have to find a way of getting the pantry open so it was absolutely full steam ahead and we were very lucky to find some premises that were empty that we were allowed to go into free of charge and we opened in November 2020. You you said Carol that you found you were you were rather horrified at the level of deprivation uh, did you did you discover that there is a lot of hidden poverty in your part it of Dorset? It is. Food poverty is a hidden poverty you don't see it People don't come through looking like they're starving, hungry. Sometimes you'll see people that will, you know, have, have a fairly large build and you would never think that they could be hungry, but they're feeding themselves on processed foods on, and a lot of rubbish, to be absolutely honest. So you just don't see food. It's the hidden poverty. 
and we were really quite struck as to how many families were going without just so that they could try and feed the children. Um, we had parents that were not eating any breakfast or lunch just so that the children could eat and this was quite common and we were finding families that would you know try and survive on the cheapest pack of home you know sort of tesco sausages or something um and, and very little else it was just it really was quite something and the idea with the pantry was that we wanted to bring in a healthy lifestyle eating with lots of fresh fruit and vegetables um obviously dairy meat but and all the tins the ambient foods and the packets and so on but fruit and veg was absolutely crucial um, so that it, if you were to come into the pantry, you would see what actually looks like a proper little shop. It doesn't look like a food bank or anything that anybody would be embarrassed or, or self-aware to go in. You can just go in and it's a really lovely little shop with lots of friendship, laughter and all sorts there. So, and that was always our aim. So Carol, how does it actually operate? Okay, so... With a food bank model, you have to be referred by an outside agency. With our pantry model, you can refer yourself. You literally just go online, go to our website, which is valepantry.co.uk, go to member, become a member, and you can just click through and you will answer a few questions. Now, the financial questions that are asked are just three, and they are, do you run out of food before the end of the week or month? Um, have you had to cut back on your shopping in the last three months? And do you struggle to pay your bills? And if so, which bills? Um, we also ask them their living situation. So whether they are um, in a social, with a social landlord or privately renting, um, owner occupier or other. What we then do is that we give that person a call and we want to actually understand what's going on for you to be in this position now what's happening in your life and there will always be underlying issues so it could well be debt marriage breakdown domestic abuse homelessness um illness long-term debilitating illness we've got a lot of that we've got a large number of families that have children with autism or children who have very high additional needs and that often causes a breakdown in partnership very often it's a single parent left that parent can't work um, because they're in and out of the school they can become very stressed and it's just such a difficult situation so we we deal with so many different types of families so but we we what we want to do is to try and make sure that we prioritize those that are most in need so we'll call them to see what's going on but we also want to understand a little bit more about their finances. What's coming in each month and what's going out? Where are you stuck? If there's debt, we've got our own citizens advisor. So let's see what we can sort out there. Um, are you getting enough? Uh, are you eligible for benefits that you, you know nothing about? Let's have a look and see if we can help you there. Um, sometimes it's there are just so many areas that we can get involved with and we help, but we just need to understand what's going on. So they will register with us, we'll approve them, sometimes we don't approve, but we'll approve them. And then on each visit, we'll ask them for a contribution of £7 towards the cost of their food. Now for every £7 that we get, it will cost us 20 or so pounds more if, if we're providing nappies and formula. 
So we have to fund the difference. And in terms of the value of the food or the shopping that they're taking away, that could be anything from 25 through to 45, 50, 60 pounds, depending upon what they're actually taking. So, so Carol, where do you get your supplies from then? Um, okay, so we have a contract with Fair Share, and that contract costs us um, just over 12,000 a year. And that will give us up to 500 kilos of food a week. Now, the thing with Fair Share, which is a national charity and it's taking excess produce from supermarkets, producers, manufacturers and so on, is that we never know what we're going to get. And there are some weeks when it's absolutely brilliant and there are others when it's really not. So we can't rely on that. So we have a contract with Morrison's. They have a wholesale division and we buy directly from Morrison's who will make a bulk delivery to us once a week in the great big wire cages that you see, the tall ones. And we'll normally have six or seven wire cages of food delivered to us and we pay for that. We're paying, it's a little bit less than retail, but not, not a huge amount less, but it's a little less. We then have contracts with um, fruit and veg supplier Heritage we work with, which is based in Wiltshire. So on a daily basis, we'll get fruit and veg delivered. Um, extra meat comes from prime cuts in Shaftesbury. But yeah, I mean, our biggest challenge is raising the money we need to buy the food we need. With us, it's not just giving people food. It's about what do we need to do to help you get back on your feet? Because for some people, it can take three to six months of some really serious in interventions, one-to-one -one budget coaching, um, appointments with citizens advisor, um, cooking lessons, cookery workshops. There's all sorts of things we do to try and get people back on their feet and coping a little bit, you know, more easily. Um, but it, it's, it is a struggle, I have to say. But last year, in 2022, we were able to get 128 families back to complete independence, but our, our door revolves. So at this moment, as we speak, we're working with just under 360 families, of which just over 400 uh, are, are children. So we've got a total of about 960 people, of which over 400 are children within 360 or well, just under 360 families. So you're obviously providing, finally, you're obviously providing um, not just uh, food, but a whole host of other uh, examples of help to the people who are your members. Yes, yes. I mean, when we first started, one of the first things we realised was um, how inexperienced some people were with cooking, with even understanding the most basic ingredients. And I always remember one person sort of picking up an onion and saying, well, I don't know, what, what is this and what would you do with it? Well, in my house, everything starts with an onion generally. So we started to see, well, what, what could we do to try and get people cooking and eating healthily and actually, you know, sort of building their own confidence up and, and being able to cook a nutritious meal from scratch for their family. So we started to put together recipe bags and within each bag, there would be every single ingredient that you would need for the whole recipe, everything, together with a step-by-step -step um, card. And sometimes we were able to link that to an online tutorial as well. 
and they would take away this bag and create a meal from scratch using fresh ingredients and we'd ask them to send us pictures of their finished meals and get their their kids and their family to rate them and so on and this was just hugely successful you know people were coming in and saying my god i've never been able to do that and the kids really loved it and it, you could just see they had such a boost in their own morale in being able to do this and we've carried on with that ever since we then started to put on a children's cookery workshop in every school holiday and uh, we bring in the friendly food club to help us and so we get the kids cooking and so they one week they had to make their own um, pizzas but they had to create they had to make the dough themselves and then decorate it themselves and some of those mums were looking like my goodness i never knew it was that easy to make a pizza i won't you know i will make my own from now on one really fabulous um, output really is that gradually some of those people that have needed us to start with are now volunteering and working within our organisation to help others. And the transformational effect that has had on self-esteem and uh, depression. We've had some that have been able to stop all their medications and they're no longer on antidepressants and they're happy. They feel that they have a purpose, that they have a need. And, and that's been absolutely amazing. Carol Jones of Stemmons to Newton's invaluable and much appreciated Veil Pantry. And apologies for the slightly echoey sound in that interview. Well, that's all we have time for in this particular episode of the BV Magazine podcast. Join us again next time. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.